It's uh, good to be here with you guys. I'm very excited about the topic that um, I'm going to be talking about. It's one that I began to be interested in in uh, undergrad. So what is love? What is the nature of love? And how, what does that have to do with us? Um, I remember once I was having a, a conversation with a friend of mine uh, about love and what it, what is it? And I was fascinated by it because of its explanatory power. It's like every time I seem to put something that I didn't understand before under the lens of love, it suddenly bore fruit and I could understand it better. And uh, I just kept bringing it up and she said, you really love love, don't you? And I thought, yes, I do. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's amazing. It explains so many things. Many of the uh, rules that uh, the Catholic Church has and that our faith has that before seemed like impositions and annoying and maybe frustrating at times, I would look at them through the lens of love and it would make so much sense. Even something that seems antithetical to love, like hell, right, understood through a lens of love makes sense. Yeah? And we can explain that at the end if you want. But so that's, that was kind of the impetus, the genesis of this. Uh, talk, and now that I'm studying uh, clinical counseling, how we work inside and how that manifests itself on the outside, kind of the theological joined with the, uh, the practical and the counseling, the, it's underneath there, yeah. Um, and all of those things that reveal themselves in, under the lens of love, right, theologically, were 10 times as true in who we are as psychological and emotional and physical beings. So that was just something that kind of exploded my interest in this topic even more. And so I thought I have to share this with people and I want you guys to get an inkling of the things that I've been seeing and learning about. So. <laughs> I'll tell you guys two things. One, this talk could be a whole years-long course. Uh, this is just a tiny piece of it, truly. And the other thing was I want to share with you guys that um, preparing this talk hit home on a lot of things personally, and I hope that it does for you as well as I'm going through some of these things because we are going to be talking about love, but that also means that we're going to talk, be talking about the lack of love and the wounds that that creates. And uh, I had some really intense personal moments with myself uh, and sometimes feeling like I wanted to cry, not really knowing where they had come from, right? Doing kind of delving into these topics. And I thought, oh man, <laughs> like I got to share this with, with, with people. So uh, I'm excited to start this talk with you guys. Okay, so let's uh, next. Oh, by the way, um, if anyone can tell me by the end what... The image was bonus points for you, the background. Uh, who are we? Um, well, let, I want to start off with, with a little bit of theology, okay, and a little bit of philosophy, and we'll see how that ties in to love and how its role in developing who we are. So at the very basic level, okay, we were created, okay? That's kind of the, the baseline. We were created by God. 
So what that means is, at the end of the day, we are beings that have received our being. Yeah. And that's true biologically, psychologically, and spiritually. Biologically, we received who we are. Right? We didn't create ourselves. We don't have that power. The bodies that we have, the organic life that we have, was given to us by our parents. Psychologically, and this is going to be a theme that will run throughout the length of the talk, we receive our life, again, from our parents. Right? A child who is not affirmed okay, does not develop a healthy psychological life. And finally, spiritually, we receive our spiritual life from God, and it's something that's cultivated or helps to be cultivated in our parents, and something that as when we uh, become adults, cultivate ourselves. One um, beautiful image of this uh, reception of spiritual life is none other than the Eucharist, right? What, what an ultimate symbol, right? We receive grace, we receive the Eucharist, The fact that we are receptive beings then means that there is a next step to that, which is we receive, okay, and then we are meant to pass that on. We're meant to pass that on. Okay? And this touches at one of the most fundamental dynamics of life, which is receiving and passing on. So we receive our biological life, and we pass it on to our children. We receive a psychological life, and we pass it on to our children, and we receive spiritual life, and we pass that on as well, okay? Now, love is something that cuts across all three of these, biological, psychological, and spiritual, right? Biological, biologically speaking, okay? we're going to see how love manifests itself even physiologically in us. How the love between a mother and a child will affect that child for the rest of its life. Psychologically, same thing, the love that we are meant to receive as children will determine our developmental trajectory until the day we die. And then spiritually, the same thing. Our spiritual life, okay, in its essence, is love because that's who God is. Next. A while back, this is now a little bit of philosophy going into psychology. People were talked about in terms of who they were as substance. Okay, no need to get into the uh, nitty gritty, but basically we were talked about as substance. So what is substance? It's this idea of looking at something and trying to understand what that thing is, like the stuff of it, yeah? You may have heard in maybe a philosophy class, like what, what is a chair, yeah? Well, a chair is uh, something that has uh, four legs that you can sit on. Well, what if we cut off one and it, we make it three? Is it still a chair, right? Or if, is it still a chair if we cut off the back, right? So is, what makes a thing that which it is, right? And that was the focus for looking and looking at people and trying to understand who they are, who we are. Okay? But Fast forward a couple hundred years, a debate sprang up, one that was greatly helped by then Cardinal uh, Ratzinger, who said, it is not enough to understand people by looking at the substance of them, 
Okay, what, what, what it is, the stuff, right? Two arms, two legs. It's not enough. We need to add one more element of being, and that's relation. That's relation. Okay. What does that mean? It means recognizing that given the fact that we received our being, given the fact that we received our being, it is not enough to look at what we are, but what we are in terms of what we have received and what we transmit. In other words, we are first and foremost relational. We are first and foremost, you could put this in quotation, like in quotations, beings that have received. Beings, in other words, that are loved. Right? That's at the core of who we are. Beings who, because of the love that God has for us, came into being. So that's another element that is essential for understanding who we are. Relational beings, not just beings in and of ourselves who have a self-identity. Okay. So psychologically, how does this translate? So we have the philosophical concepts, right, of substance and relation, what the thing is by itself, and then how it is in relation to other things. If we look at it psychologically, we, how does that translate? Well, it's your self-identity. You look at yourself and what do you see, right? Also, you look at others and how do they see you and how do you see yourself in their eyes, right? Next. Okay. So, this concept of relationality is one that is very important, not just philosophically, but psychologically. Okay. Because at the end of the day, when we look at ourselves, when we try to understand what is it that we understand by self-identity, okay, there are a couple things there. First, self-concept. Okay, we look at self-concept, and that is what do you understand yourself to be? Right? What do you understand yourself to be? Okay. But then you also understand yourself as who am I? in relation to others. And the interesting thing is this. The concept of identity as relational occurs first, even before self-identity. Think of a child, right? The first thing a child says is mom or dad, right? It doesn't, it doesn't come out saying me, 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 right? The child understands itself first as the son or daughter of someone else before acting out its volition upon others in the world, right? So even at the very beginning of a child's life, we see how that child begins to develop its identity first and foremost in relation to others, in relation to others. Next. Alrighty. So this Identity, this, um, the development of self-identity, of self-concept, okay, is extremely important for two, well, for more than two reasons, but two reasons we'll go into now. Firstly, the fact that in order to be relational, you must first have a being that will relate to others. Okay? Parents play a critical role in developing that self-concept that that child will have and carry with it for the rest of its life. 
So when that goes well, what does that look like? When that goes well, it looks like parents affirming the child, parents loving the child, right? What does that often look like? Parents um, holding a child, looking at the child's eyes, okay? Those things are love that is transmitted to the child that tells the child who he or she is. Namely, you are loved. You are loved. And children who feel loved, who feel valued, feel valuable. Children who feel valued, feel valuable. And add this to their understanding of who they are, of who they are. This development of who I am begins with reception. This idea of who am I? Am I lovable? Am I valuable? Am I good? Is not something that's developed on our own. It's not something that's developed on our own. We don't go out and tell others, hey, I'm good. Right? Hey, I'm lovable. No. That's something that is communicated to us by our parents. Right? And we'll see in a little bit what happens when those things are not there, right? Because parents, despite their best efforts, can sometimes, in their love, in that, in that communication, can do so imperfectly, right? So what does that look like, uh, briefly? A preview. Any love that is missing, any affirmation that is missing, or I should say to the degree that that love, that that giving of the parents, that giving of identity, of I am good and I am valuable and I am lovable, okay, will develop into a search for that love, for that tell me I am valuable, tell me I am lovable later on in life. Okay? And it manifests itself in various ways. More on that in a moment. There's a, a great quote by St. John Paul II in an uh, encyclical of his that reads, man cannot live without love. He remains in a being, oh, excuse me, he remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. So, this role that love plays in telling us who we are, again, is not something that even stays at the level of emotion and psychological health, but one that plays a central role in our faith. It's one that seeks to be at the core of who we are and of our worship. Because at the end of the day, that's who created us. Uh, next, please. All right. So love is self-gift. I'm sure we've heard of this concept maybe through uh, Theology of the Body or in other talks or somewhere or other. Gift of the whole person. But So my uh, intent here is not to, is not to uh, reinvent the wheel but rather to give it a kind of a psychological perspective, right? So 
the idea that love is self-gift, first of all, indicates that when we love someone, we're not simply giving them something, right? We're not simply doing something for them, but we're giving of ourselves, our time, our effort. And there's one definition of love that is good, which is willing the good of the other, right? And that's, that's excellent. That's a good definition. You will the good of the other, right? And you could even add for the sake of the other. But that definition of willing the good of the other is a little incomplete. Why? Because willing the good of the other touches on our, our will. Okay, I want this for you. But when we love someone, when we love people, we are giving of our whole person. Right? So there's more to love than simply saying, hey, you know what? I want what's best for you. And that's it. Right? If, we, if we experience love as, as merely that, okay, we, may, we may experience some problems. But what does it mean to give our whole person as a gift? It means that there's a level of emotion. It must also touch our affect. Okay? So maybe a more complete vision of love is bringing out the beauty of the other person and helping them see that. Right. So maybe what might what might loving the uh, the other person only with an act of the will uh, look like? Right. You're walking along uh, the street and you see someone without. You see a homeless person who looks hungry, and you toss them some food, and you say, "Have this, you low life." Right. Hey, I willed what was good for you, and I gave you something. Why are you calling that not love? Okay, right? Because my whole person was not involved. My whole person was not in love. Uh, was not involved. When we love someone, we show them, and there is a certain, there is a certain, simply being there, that can be appreciated. So, really, really, when when there is love there. There is a certain expression of it is good that you exist. Not because you're virtuous, not because you are skilled, not because of these things that you've achieved, but simply because you exist. And that's it. There's nothing more that you need to, or there's nothing that you need to do, right? or anything, except be you. And that's love. And I think that that is beautiful and gorgeous. And I want to show you that every day. That's the kind of love that elevates. That's the kind of love that elevates. And that's the kind of love that is more than simply an act of the will, but rather a love that involves our whole person. Uh, next, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the nat a little bit more about the nature of this love and how this love manifests itself in our, even in our biology and in our physiology, right? Like we said, in our biology, in our psychology, and in our spiritual lives. So it bears explaining a little bit about the difference between explicit and implicit memory. So again, and this will, this will explain the, uh, the role that parents have. 
So explicit memory and implicit memory are two different kinds of memory that we have. Explicit memory is the kind that you can recall consciously and it's relating facts or relating a story, right? It's a memory that I went and bought some groceries the other day or the year is 2021. That's explicit memory. Factual, easy to recall, right? Easy come and go. Implicit memory, however, is memory how? If I asked you to tell me with your words how to tie your shoe, you might have trouble doing that, right? Because it's something that you do automatically, right? Or how to walk. It's not something that we do consciously. It's memory that is stored in our subconscious, okay? But for that reason, for that reason, governs our lives in ways that we may not see, and therefore is very powerful. So, how does this come into the conversation? When we are growing, when we are children, we receive love through our parents, even when we are just born, in ways that are invisible. When our mothers, when our fathers look into our eyes as children, the pupils will dilate, both of the mothers and of the child's. In fact, in response to one another. So this starts to create neuronal pathways in our brains, right, as children and then later as parents that start to form, start to form what are called mental models, okay? The hugs that we receive when we're toddlers, okay, when we're growing up, those shows of love, which are not explicit, they are not our parents telling you, hello, I love you, and then leaving, right? Which, nothing against using the words, I love you, right? But they create an experience of love that is felt more than just heard and understood, right, intellectually. They create an experience of love that starts to create mental models of what love is, what love looks like, what love feels like. So when toddlers are growing into taller 10-year-olds and when 10-year-olds are growing into adolescents and when adolescents are growing into adults, those models that are created by the parents, which are created by those subconscious experiential shows of love, start to create these models of what does love look like in the world, okay? So what exactly is a model applied to kind of how we live out our life. Well, a model is your understanding of how something is supposed to go. And it's not something that you need to go through in your head again. It's just simply how things work. So for example, you go to a restaurant. You have a mental model of how that's supposed to work. You go in, you're greeted, you're taken to a table, you order food, food is brought, you pay for it. Right, that's the mental model. There are mental models for basically every experience of our life. 
So, for example, what might a mental model look like for someone who has not received love or not received healthy love in a romantic relationship? It might look something like, all right, we've been dating for several months, and now this is the part where I get dumped. Why? Because I've been rejected every time, and that's hurt. So what might we do to protect ourselves? Well, I might end the relationship first, right? Kind of a preemptive defense, right? Why? Because I have a model of what those kinds of relationships look like. So when we receive, when we receive the love that we need when we are young, the healthy models that live on and tell us what love looks like can be grounded in our implicit memory. Okay. Uh, next, we're gonna get into the anatomy of a wound. So, with this thought, if we receive as a mental model the idea that love has to be earned, we will be chasing that trying to earn love until we fix that model. Because that's one of the most important and core notions of our faith and of love, which is it's unmerited. It's not earned in any way. It's something that is a gift by definition. And that's a mental model that can't be taken for granted. It is possible to receive the mental model of I'm giving you my love, but because you've earned it. So that can be something that is very pernicious as well, right? You've done a great job, and because of that, I love you. Well, that, that feels good, right? But the invisible converse side is, of that is if you don't do a good job, if you don't achieve, if you don't perform, then I, re- I reserve my love. Then you don't get it. So love as a gift can never be earned. It's something that is given freely. So what happens when we don't receive that love? Well, a wound forms. And that takes, this is taken from two counselors that I've, um, that I've been listening to and who in their experience with clients, with patients, began to realize that wound formation from that lack of love that was experienced can be modeled this way. You have the experience of the hurt, then Ted, thoughts, emotions, right? and desires, the lie, which is in response to the thoughts, the emotions, and the desires, and then the vow, something that you promise yourself. So what does that mean? The anatomy of wound can be broken down like this. Let's say you, let's say as a student, right, you get something, you raise your hand because you want to volunteer an answer because you feel that you have it. You raise your hand and the teacher calls on you and you give your answer. And then the teacher, right, or any figure of authority, right, says, 
What a stupid answer. Right. Well, what is the experience there? It's one of embarrassment, right? Maybe shame. So what are the thoughts, experience, sorry, thoughts, emotions, and desires that are happening at that moment in that experience of being told that's stupid? Right? Thoughts might be, I'm feeling kind of dumb. Thoughts might be, I'm feeling embarrassed. <coughs> emotions might be one of fear. I'm afraid of being made the fool in front of all my classmates. And what might be some desires in that moment? I long to be safe right now, but I can't because I'm being shown to be a fool in front of everyone. So what is the lie that can begin to worm its way into our hearts because of that experience and those thoughts, emotions, and desires that are not being met. It can be something like, you're bad. It can be something like, you're not enough. You are not enough. Okay. You give stupid answers. You're dumb. You're not enough. You're not smart enough. By the way, that other guy who gets all the answers right, you need to be like him. Because how you are right now, insufficient. And then the vowel. I swear that I will never expose myself like that again. In order to protect ourselves from the lie that hurts so much, you're not good. You're not good enough. You're bad. We create, we create what here is called the vow, a promise to ourselves to put a distance between the original experience, between the original openness that we have, right? I'm going to open myself in order to share of myself and everyone can benefit. But because of that hurt, not anymore. So that, that hurt is still there. The vow doesn't heal anything. The vow only protects us from further experiences of that pain, right? And it becomes this kind of crusty layer on top of a wound that doesn't address the wound, it merely provides a tough layer, right? kind of like Shrek, right? Who famously is like an onion, and you peel the layers of his heart and itself, and then you get to the soft underbelly of the ogre, right? Who really is not an ogre at all, but a guy who's lonely, and who appreciates the donkey even though he died before saying that. All right. So these, these hurts and this, these loves that we don't receive become, uh, through these wounds that we receive, shape and become the lens through which we see and understand the rest of the world in our lives to the degree that those wounds are not healed. Right. So a wound, say again, that says love has to be earned. Right. So if love has to be earned, right, if I am shown again and again as a little kid that love is conditional, I will be chasing that love right, as an adolescent. I will be chasing that love as an adult. 
So what might that look like? It might look like a person who is controlling, right? If I don't take control of the situation, I will not receive the love that I crave, right? Or maybe I'm not good enough. So if that's the mental model that's been drilled into our heads with these experiences, with this lack of love, then what might happen? I might live my life trying to prove myself to others, right? Instead of understanding that uh, the dynamic of love as a gift. Uh, next, please. All right. So, what I'm going to describe is some extremes that can happen when wounds are not addressed, but that doesn't mean that each of us are exactly what I'm gonna describe. These are maybe the ends of the spectrum of which we may participate in little pieces here and there, right? So what do wounds made manifest look like? Right. So when we do not receive a healthy, loved, and therefore loving self-identity, well, we will create one. So we can create like an analogy. It's kind of like a castle that you have, and it's medieval times, so everyone else has castles too. But your castle is broken down, and it maybe smells weird. Okay, there's something growing in there or died and you don't know what it is. And you look around and all the other castles look fantastic. They're well built, the architecture is beautiful, but yours is not. It's kind of falling apart. Well, what might you do? You could work on your castle, go and build it, but that's hard work. And it's hard work because building something is hard, right? Stone is not easy to manipulate. But because while you're working on it, you have to stare at your own ugly castle all day while you're building it. That is not pleasant. Well, what's a quick fix? You could build a wall. You could build a wall. And that way, others won't need to see your castle. They won't need to see your castle. In fact, not only does it save you the pain of working and rebuilding your own castle, but when others look, what will they see? A beautiful, shiny wall, behind which must be another beautiful castle. But what's the problem here? We don't live in the wall. We live in the castle. We live in the castle. So this kind of analogy, this metaphor of building the wall around the castle is a silly, a silly little metaphor for what it looks like when we invest in a false self that doesn't correspond to who we really are. So that lack of love that causes us to create a fake self okay, can man manifest itself in one of three broad ways. And again, like I said, 
we don't necessarily embody these fully to the extent that I'm about to say, but we can be aware that we may have traits of one of these. So what might be the first way that we can get that love that everyone needs if, we, if it hasn't been given to us? Well, we could live out in a compliant state, right? trying to please everybody. So what's, what's the lie in this way of behaving? The lie is, if I can get everybody to love me, to be okay with me, to like me, then I'll be okay. So we try to please everyone. We please. Another manifestation could be to aggrandize. This is more narcissistic. I do not experience, do not feel the love that needed to be given to me. So I will use others to kind of suck that love out of them. So what does this look like? It looks like this. I will aggrandize myself in order to bask in your admiration of me. Right? That's, the, that's another form that this can take. Right, so vanity. Okay. Again, it isn't always full-blown these, but we can identify little bits and pieces of these in ourselves. The other one is to withdraw. If I've been hurt, if I've been hurt, well, then I can say, in order not to be let down by anybody ever again, what's the solution? Well, I can make it so that I don't have to depend on anybody ever again. I can just do it myself. So I will withdraw into my heavily fortified castle and not depend on anybody. What does that look like lived out practically? It means I will seek control. If I control the situation, I don't need to depend on anybody. Okay. If I have control of the dynamics of love in my, among my friend group or in my family, I don't need to open myself I don't need to let myself be loved. Okay. I can control that situation on my own. So I withdraw and control from my keep. So we can ask ourselves, in what ways, if we comply, if we are in compliance, if we think that we need to please, in what ways do we sacrifice ourselves or our values? Or at what times? Uh, in order to get someone's approval, get someone's love, which is what we're looking for in the end. If we aggrandize, in what ways do we seek to be admired by others in order to fill our needs? And finally, when we withdraw, in what ways do I seek to present us? In what ways do I seek to prevent myself being vulnerable in order to keep myself safe? Next, please. You are loved, child. Okay. 
So a few notes. Finally, um, I want to make a a note on um, kind of a principle, and then what that may look like in in life. This is a phrase that I heard that was so <laughs> spot on. Love. Oh, excuse me. A wound that is not redeemed. Sorry, that's my alarm. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. Um, it's a, oh, perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, it, um, a wound that is not redeemed will be transmitted. Powerful. So, what does that mean? It means any lack of love, because we are in our very core beings that receive beings that cannot create love and feed off of it, but need to receive it in order to give it as a self-gift. Any wounds that are formed because of love that was not given to us, to the extent that we don't heal them, we will pass them on to our friends, to our loved ones, and to our children. So love, a wound, right? maybe it's a propensity to criticize. I, growing up, was not loved unless I did things perfectly. And that created a wound. And that made it so that if I was not perfect, then I would not receive the love. And so then I will now pass that same demanding, demanding nature onto my children. I will do the same, that the lack of love that I received will now be passed on to my children. So it's so important to bring to light those wounds. And a tie-in to confession that I heard that was so good was, in confession, we will confess our sins. And that is so good. That is so good. And sacraments... Right, not knocking the sacraments, right? Go to confession, right? However, there's a difference in, in what Nathan, yeah, right? We have a piece here. <laughs> yeah. However, when we, when we uh, go to confession, we will say the sin, right? We will say what we did, but we aren't necessarily raking through the muck and bringing it to the light. We, we are not bringing up our shame. So what does that mean? It means one thing is to say, Father, I did this thing. And then these other 15 things. And to be sorry for them. And then to receive absolution and then leave. That is good. There's immense grace that comes from that. However, that does not do the psychological and uh, work of mentioning our shame, the terrible thing we did, bringing it to the person that it most directly hurt and saying, I did this, look at it. I am so humiliated that I did it, but there it is. And allowing that person to say, you know what? I see that disgusting thing that's on the table and I love you anyways. That thing you did was horrible, and it hurt me deeply. 
but you are good at the end of the day. And I love that you exist. And I love being with you. So that horrible shame that you have, it's okay. You don't need to believe that you are not good. You can have done that thing that you described to me and be good and be enough. Because I love you despite that. That's the kind of work, that's the kind of muckraking that needs to happen in order to heal a shame that though we receive graces for confessing it in the sacrament of reconciliation, needs to happen in order for those wounds to heal and for us to feel that love and therefore pass it on. Sometimes when we're talking to, um, we can be speaking to someone who has been hurt and they can know all the right answers to God is love, God loves me, uh, we, are, we were created in love, uh, Jesus died for us. We can know all those answers, but that's knowledge, that's here, that's explicit knowledge. Right, explicit memory. Until we receive and feel and experience love in a way that touches our implicit memory, we won't heal those wounds. Right? It's kind of like you have to fight fire with fire. Right? If you were not, if, if you were affected in your implicit memory, if you received invisible messages, right? I love you, but right, you need to do this there won't be a healing that goes on until the love that we receive ex is experiential, not just with words. Right. So what does that mean going forward, right? It's not just wounds. The beauty of all this is that knowing that we are in our core loved, knowing that at the end of the day, there is nothing more central to who we are than you are loved, child. It means that nobody, nothing, no wound, no person, no experience can take that away from us. At the end, we were always loved. Precisely for who we are, we are loved and we will always be loved. And that means that no shame, no sin okay, can ever overcome that. And we can rest, we can rest knowing that we will have that love forever and we can be in peace with being loved sons and daughters of God and then take that and give that to others. Because at the end of the day, that's what the reception is all about. The reception is not the end of the story. That's the beginning of it. I receive the love, but then it's time to pass it on. And that's the most fundamental dynamic of life. I receive the love that is unconditional and unmerited so that I can then pass it on to those people that I most love. Thank you, guys.